Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. in Hosea, and as you notice, we read almost two chapters. We stopped at verse three because we're going to be taking these two chapters in this in these brief 44 minutes, and I'm going to try my best to get through them. So I want you to hang on tight because we're going to go through a big roller coaster. I'm going to be explaining a big portion of scripture, and um, really because it, they're all within the same time frame. And they're all talking about the same thing. And so try to navigate with me as we get through here. My job is to try to keep your face in the text uh, so you don't look at this uh, ugly face right here, the face only a mother can love. Uh, so I want to try to keep your face in the text, learning from God's word as much as possible today because it's so rich what's going on in here. We're, we're almost at the middle of Hosea and what God is doing in Hosea and what he's saying to the people of Israel is of utter importance. These last couple of weeks, we went through the leadership. Henry last week spoke to you guys a little bit about the arrogance of the leadership. And just seeing how God is preoccupied with his people. It's, it's impressive. So we're going to take this by parts. So if you write notes, just write these brief parts down. Part one, we're going to examine Israel's false repentance, which is verses one through three of chapter six. And then we're going to examine part two, which is how God rejects Israel's repentance, which is from chapter 6, verse 4, all, through, all the way through 7, verse 2. And the final aspect of this portion is part three, where God uses some comparisons to bring clarity on how he views Israel. God compares Israel. So it's very interesting what's happening during this moment, and uh, it's very important for us to take note of what this means. So if you go back to chapter 6 in Hosea, verses 1 through 3 are very important. Look at the first words we find here in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. I want you to go back one verse in chapter 5, verse 15. Look what God says. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. See, what God is saying is I'm going back to where I am, where I'm always at, and I want them to acknowledge their guilt. And God is asking the people to seek after him. God is asking for an earnest seeking, not a phony one. And so verse 1 in chapter 6 kind of brings us to this awareness that, oh, Israel has responded correctly. Israel says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. 
this seems like a repentance, correct? This seems like the people want to come back to God. However, they can't. I want you to go back to verse chapter 5. Look what chapter 5 says. Verse, you guys read this last week. Uh, verses 4 through 6 says, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. So you get it? Verse 1 in chapter 6 says, let's return to God. Chapter 5 says, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for, their, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. We've talked about the spirit of whoredom for a long time. It's devastated Israel. Verse 5 of chapter 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and their herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. So do you think that chapter 6 verse 1 this return to the Lord is genuine. We begin to see how Israel begins to stumble in their arrogance. And though they say, I want to go back to God, though they say we want to seek the Lord, we want him to heal us, we want him to raise us up like, like the rising of the dawn, they do not genuinely seek after God. The word return in the Hebrew shuv, it implies a separation. In this case, with the metaphor of the marriage, it's an estrangement. They're gone. They're separated. They're living separately. It's kind of if you grew up in a family or you may have been part of a family where the husband sleeps in the basement and the wife sleeps in the bedroom or, or, the, or dad doesn't come home until the weekend because they're separate. They're estranged. There is anger. There is, uh, there is uh, animosity with each other. There isn't love in the home. They're separate, and so they want to return. They are requesting, if you see verse 2, what, are, what is one of their first requests? They want God to revive them. In verse 1, they say, he will heal us. And then it says, he will bandage us up. Since he's the one that struck us down, he will bind us up. Bind us up means bandage, cover the wounds. So when you have a bandage on you, it's because you got a cut, and it's open, and it's blood. And, and they're coming to God torn up. Their wounds are open, and they're saying, God, you can heal me. You can heal us, and you can bandage, bandage up our wounds. But check this out. Look at what verse 13 says in chapter 5. Go back to chapter 5. Verse 13 says, when Ephraim saw his sickness... And Judah, his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to be to their great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. You see, uh, the Israel, if, when you read Ephraim and Israel and Judah, Ephraim and Israel are inter interchangeable. They're the same entity. They're the same nation. Judah however, has, has had a little bit more compassion from God. And we saw this from chapter 1 and 2, where Judah is about to fall into the same 
sinful desires as Israel. Remember, there is a separation in nations. And they're coming to God. This prayer to return to God comes in a moment when they've already gone to somebody else. What, what did verse 13 say? They saw their wounds, they saw their sickness, and they went where? Did they go to God first? No. They went, check out how the Bible uses this phrase and how God puts this phrase in Hosea's mouth. They went to the great king of Assyria. They didn't go to God first. When we read verses 1 through, through 3 in chapter 6, they're coming to God, and it looks like, wow, these people have repented. But, hey, they went somewhere else first. Someone else was their remedy for their sickness. But what happened when they went to the king of Assyria? He's not able to cure you, and he's not able to heal your wound. So when you go to, when they went to a false god, when they went to a false uh, healer, they realized he can't do nothing for us. So we must go to Yahweh. Kind of as a last resort. Second thought, maybe he can really heal us. And though they know that this is true, they're approaching it with caution. And they're saying what God, what they think God wants to hear. And when you think about this, this whole metaphor of the marriage has been in the back of the mind for a long time now. I mean, here we have a, an unfaithful wife realizing that she has nowhere else to go, that the man or the men that she has cheated on her husband with have closed the doors. They don't want to clothe her. They don't want to bring her into the house. They're saying, man, you bring me more trouble than, than whatever I ever expected, so I'm kicking you out on the street. They have, Israel has nowhere else to go, and now we see this kind of unfaithful wife come crawling back to her husband. Kind of saying, hey, I want to come back to you, baby. I love you. I love you, boo. Open the door. It's me. And then the amazing thing that we see here is God's response. But you see what, what the woman or what Israel is doing is coming to God because they want healing. Verse 2 says they want a quick recovery. It says only after two days... Kind of saying, we realize that this judgment is coming from God. And it says in verse 2, after two days, he will surely revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up and we may live before him. They kind of want something quick. They want God's judgment to end. They don't want to be under the pressure of God's judgment. It hurts. It's, it's, it's painful. Get me out of this quickly in two days, God. Revive me. Bring me back. In a certain way, they know that God is consistent. Look at verse 3. They know that he is consistent when they say, let us press to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. 
He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What they're saying is, we know that God can do it. We know that God can heal because he is consistent. He is faithful. When God says he's going to do something, he will do it. And so we know if we come back to God, God will most definitely heal us. My question is, why didn't you go to him in the first place? Why didn't you go to God if you knew God was going to do that? And if you know God is going to heal, and if you know God is going to have your back, why didn't you go to him in the first place? So they're seeking after this because they know to a certain extent that God is consistent. So it's a type of demand, God, heal me. We are your people. We deserve healing. And we know that you can do it. So they, do they really want to know him? Or have they seen his external attributes executed by his gracefulness in, their, in God's giving that they just want to receive the gifts? Remember the gifts from chapter 2 and chapter uh, 1 and 2? It's all about the gifts. This girl, this woman has been chasing after gifts this entire time. And now that she finds herself in the worst moment of her life, she wants to be healed. But the important thing here is that in all of this, they've realized that the one causing their affliction is God. Verse 3 is is very clear. That, no, sorry, verse 2, sorry, verse 1 Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. Right there they realize he has torn us, and he has struck us down. This torment, this affliction is coming by God's hand. So if he's the one that's doing it, he's the one that can bring the healing at the same time. But what God sees is not a genuine repentance. This is not a genuine call to seek after God. God is always aware of the person's heart. I want you to read with me in Psalms. Look at, go to Psalms real quick. We're going to be reading a lot of different scripture to show certain truths about worship and about who God is. But look at Psalm chapter 78. Verses 34 through 37. It says this, When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues, their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. What is God saying? And what is Israel doing at this moment? Lip service. It's just lip service. They are telling and saying to God what he wants to hear. What they believe He wants to hear. For some reason, they've forgot that God is sovereign and that he knows all things. And God sees the heart. 
they, in a certain sense, they've come to God saying, hey, God, I come to church. I go to church on Sundays. I, uh, I'm giving my offering. I'm, I'm doing good. Uh, I, I've done what I had to do in my life to, to, to serve you. I'm, I'm in a ministry. I'm, I'm helping out in the, in the streets. I'm clothing the, the naked. I'm giving food to the poor. I'm doing everything, God. I deserve to be healed. I deserve for you to stop tormenting me. I deserve to be out of your judgment, God. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at who we are. We're coming to you. It's all lip service. And so therefore, we get the response from verses 4 through chapter 7, verse 2. This is the second part. God utterly rejects this phony repentance. There's a huge lesson here. you got to remember, we cannot fake out God. No one can pull a fast one on God. We can pretend to be religious all we want. We can pretend to be Christian all we want. We could come to church every Sunday of the year. God knows the heart. So therefore, God rejects them completely. Look at the first verse. Uh, verse 4, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim, or Israel? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Look at what he says. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. What is he saying? He's saying your love is phony. Today you love me, tomorrow you won't. In a certain, to a certain extent, it's, it's God is kind of saying, you really have no genuine feelings for me. If we compare it to our modern day, it, do you remember being in love in high school? Do you remember how much you loved your girlfriend or your boyfriend in high school? And chances are not many of us married the high school sweetheart because we were high school love. It's like, I love you. The next day it was like, I hate you. The next day I loved somebody else. And you were in love like five different times in high school with five different people. Like we all remember that unless I'm the only one that fell in love like 20 times in high school. It's that type of childish grammar school, eighth grade, seventh grade. Like, oh my God, he's my life. I can't believe he's not with me anymore. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. It's that childish type of love. God is saying it, it's phony. It's fake. What am I going to do with you? God knows the heart. Now we're going to uh, uh, see another verse that is part of the same story in chapter 7. So if, you're, if you have your Bible open in chapter 7, look at what verse 2 says in chapter 7. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. Here we go. God is saying, do they, are they oblivious to the fact that they are still drenched in sin? It's like, it's like that high school love where you say, I love you, baby. I love you, baby. And then, and then remember your high school partner was like flirting with somebody else at the same time. And you're like, 
I thought you said you loved me. Oh, but it's because she has, oh, it's because, and God is like, you're still doing the same things and you're saying you want to come back to me? Did they forget that I know they're evil? What God says is even more important in, in that last part of that verse. Their deeds surround them. They are before my face. It's a, that's why I love the ESV, because it's a literal translation. Their sin is before God's face. It's in his face. Have you ever had somebody in your face? That's how sin, the people's sin, was before God's face. Verse 14 in chapter 7 goes a step further. Verse 14 in chapter 7 says, They do not cry to me from their hearts. Ouch. Immediately, God understands that this so-called repentance was phony because it didn't come from a genuine heart. It didn't come from their heart at all. So did they repent? If you examine verses 1 through 3 in chapter, in chapter 6, can you, can you honestly say these people repented? What did they ask for? All they asked for was God to save them. God to heal them. Did they ever once come before and acknowledge their guilt? Did they say, forgive me, forgive us. We're sorry for all of our iniquities. We have transgressed your, your word. We have transgressed your law. Did they ever ask for forgiveness? They didn't. If you read it yourself, you won't find it. All they said was, let's go back and let's find healing and let's find life in God. That's it. They wanted to be released from God's judgments because he is certain. It's interesting that verse 3 is juxtaposed to verse 4 because verse 3 shows God's certainty, shows God's faithfulness, and verse 4 immediately shows their fakeness, their uncertainty, their untruthfulness. They're inconsistent. It's like a morning cloud. It just fades away. It's, it, it doesn't last. Their, their worship, their love for God is phony. It's fake. And it fades away. Ephemeral. Cheap. And it doesn't last. Since we're talking about high school love, you may have remembered a ring your high school sweetheart may have given you that turned your finger green. It was fake. It was cheap. It wasn't real. It was ephemeral. And you probably don't even have that ring anymore. That's what God is comparing his people's love to. They had no desire to repent. They were not seeking after God. They were seeking after his gift. And friends, I've been in the church world all my life, and I have seen this time and time again. People come to church because they want to receive something. They want God to give them something. They believe that God owes them something. And to be truthful, that's the way I used to come to church. Man, I'm the pastor's son. I, I deserve God's blessings over my life. I deserve to be uh, in, in a good school. I deserve to be doing this. I, be, I deserve to get a good job. A lot of us just came to church 
because we wanted God to give us something. And then what, what's unfortunate about my generation, and it happened in a lot of generations, but what's unfortunate in my generation is when God didn't give us those things that we thought we deserved, we found those things in education, in our Ivy League schools. We found those things in our good jobs and in our money. And so we've turned to Assyria and we've abandoned God. So these people didn't seek after God correctly. Look at back at verse five, at chapter five. Look at what it says. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Why? Because the spirit of whoredom is within them. What is God saying there? Their heart is full of prostitution. Their heart is full of whoredom. It's a hard word. They are flirts with others. They desire the love of other people. And that's why they can't come to God genuinely. Yeah, they can seek after God because he can give them something, but they're not coming with their hearts because their heart is filled of whoredom, of prostitution, of other men, of other women, of other idols. Verse 5 of chapter 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Why can't they come to God? Because they are prideful. They're arrogant. They got it all figured out. We don't need God. We can go to Assyria. We don't need this Yahweh. We can go to Egypt to get help. We can go to Assyria to get help. Oh, but when Assyria doesn't help? And it's interesting in a couple of years after this context, Assyria demolishes Israel. The same people that they thought were going to get help from them destroys them completely, kills all their sons. That's who you want to get help from? Verse 13 of chapter 5. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you. And he will not hear your, heal your wound. God was in second place in their heart. Or third. And most importantly, verse 15 of chapter 5. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. Israel did not acknowledge their guilt. And they did not seek God's face. And then God says in verse 15... In their distress, earnestly, truthfully, faithfully seek me. Because pride was in their heart. They could not earnestly, faithfully, truthfully seek after God. This, is this repentance? Are these people repentant before God? That is why if we read this Carefully, God sends them prophets. God sends them to be judged by his word. Remember this, prophets, we may have a modern perception of prophets as being these mystical kind of magicians that foresee the future. But in reality, the prophets of the Old Testament, the only reason why they were there was to proclaim God's word to their people, to his people. 
The prophets existed to remind the people of who God was. That's why they were there. And that's why God sent them when the people would go the wrong way and be in, 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 in prideful arrogance following after other gods. God would send prophets to warn them not to do so. That's the case with Hosea. Hosea is warning Israel. Amos later on is prophesying during a time where the destruction has already come. Right now the warning is out there. You guys are, are, are full of spirit of whoredom. Be careful because destruction is coming. The prophets brought the word of God to the people of God to warn them. And because they closed their ears, they did not listen. Chapter 7 verse 10 says, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. You can imagine the people listening to the message, to the word of God like this. Have you ever seen somebody at church sit down? How long do I have to be here? And they look to their girlfriend or to their wife. I'm only here because you told me you're going to buy me something afterwards. I'm only here because uh, you hustled me. You said we were going to go to buy me some clothes and you brought me here. And like you, like there's arrogance. You may not see it, but I, get, I see it because I have to look at you guys. <laughs> I'm like, I'm watching you guys. And you, you guys don't see each other. But I have to see you guys. Sometimes I'm like, Lord, help me. But their pride was before them. The, the prophet spoke. Look at what, what verse 5 says in chapter 6. Therefore I have hewn them, or I have helped them with the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. Do you see that? The word of God through the voice of the prophets was light to them. But instead of it being life to them, it destroyed them because it exposed their sin. They were living in darkness and God uses light to expose their sin. So rather than helping him, it destroyed them. Because they were prideful. And then verse 6 of chapter 6 is the central focus of this message. I want you to read it with me. It says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God here gives us, gives his people clear, clear instruction. You can't be any clearer than this. I desire chesed, this genuine faithful love, and not all this phony baloney sacrifice. You see, what, what, what kept happening in Israel was not only that they were offering these religious sacrifices to their phony gods, they thought they were being pious. If you don't know what pious means, it, it means like, like this elevated level of spiritualism, spiritualism, like a people that is super holy. They thought they were right by doing all of these sacrifices, and God says, stop. I don't desire these sacrifices. I desire love. True love towards me and towards others. And then he says, the knowledge of God rather than 
burnt offerings. Basically, what God is saying is, I want your heart and I want your mind. I don't want this external ritualistic religion. I don't want your exterior motives. I want your interior. I want your heart. I want your knowledge. I want your mind to be focused on me. See, the people of Israel grew into that comfort level of just being very religious. Going along with the motions, but a heart separate from God completely. This is a common theme in the prophets. Go with me to Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Look what chapter 11 says. I mean, chapter 1, verse 11. Isaiah 1, verse 11. What to me is this multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incest is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and all the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Man. God doesn't desire all of these prayers and offerings and rituals. God said, clean yourself. God desires the hearts. Didn't matter how much, how much more offerings they brought, how many more sacrifices they had. It was all empty religion, empty rituals. Some of us do that every Sunday. emptiness. The people had forgotten God. They have ignored him. This knowledge of God was a big theme for Hosea. You see it in chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 4, verses 1 and 6, chapter 5, verse 4, and even in the chapter that we're in, God desires his people to know him. Know him, very truly know him. That is why we are committed to knowing him through his word. I can't be up here and, 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 and get you guys, let's think about God. How do you imagine God? Is he, is he like shiny? Oh, wow, God is so cool. Like we can't get, sit here and, and, and imagine God. We got to look at what his word says. That's how we'll know him and that's how we'll be changed by him. We need to know God and the people in Israel had forgotten 
to know God. That's why they could not emulate God. That's why they could not be like God. That's why they could not do what God wanted because they didn't know him. That's why they were not faithful to each other. They were not faithful to God. They were not loyal to each other. They were not loyal to God. They were not obedient and they had no love for one another or for God because they didn't know God. But even though they didn't know God, this is the scary part, even though they didn't know God, what does chapter 5 of Hosea say, verse 3? I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit, permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Even though they had no clue who God was, ugh, God knew exactly who they were. That's scary. A lot of us can pretend to hide Say, I don't need God, I don't know him, I don't want to know him, I'm away from him. But man, he knows us. And if, you, if you're anything like me, it's scary. It's scary that God knows everything we think about. The fact that God doesn't send us directly to hell <laughs> is a gracious, loving thought. Because he knows everything. These people... They were just pretending. Verse 7 of chapter 6 is, is, is kind of shows us what they began to do. They, verse 7 says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. They, they completely opposed God's word. That was a covenant God had established with Moses. From the, even from before Moses, they mentioned Adam. God had made a covenant with his people. And they transgressed it. They abolished it. They broke God's law. They broke his word. And now God's word has broken them. See, we, we think that we harm God by not listening to him. Or by saying, see ya. But then God breaks us with his very word. Look at what verse 10 says of chapter 6. In the house of Israel, I have seen a, a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. They are defiled. They're dirty. Chapter 7, verse 3, look at what chapter 7, verse 3 says. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes, by their treachery, they are happy in doing evil. You got to remember, these are the people that are asking to come back to God. These are the people that are saying, hey, God, I'm, I'm here at church. Hello, I'm here. Attendance, check. But their hearts were far from me. And therefore, this last section in part three, we find these comparisons. From chapter seven, verse three, all the way to chapter eight, we see these comparisons with a heated oven in verse four. And it talks about this unbridled, un, un, uncontainable fire. Verse four says, uh, they are all uh, adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire. I mean, none of us, I mean, if you're a baker, you understand this, but I'm, I'm not a cook per se, but, 
I know that when the fire is out of control, there's no need for you to try to get more fire. It's already out of control. So the baker stops moving the fire. And what are these passions that have overcome it? Verse 5 talks about drunkenness. Verse 6 of chapter 7 talks about anger. Verse 7 talks about treachery. Verse 8 talks about mixing with other nations. This is the unconstrained fire that God compares him to. A heated oven. Someone that is emotionally, people that are just charged. They're unconstrained. They are like a fire. And in verse 8, we get this mixing together that brings in this element of this other comparison in verse, uh, in verse 8 that says, Ephraim mixes himself with the, with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. So the first comparison is this heated oven. The second comparison is this cake not turned. And that means that they've been mixing themselves with other peoples, the enemies of God. God told them not to do that, and they've done it. And they're mixing themselves, and so therefore they're like a half-baked cake. None of us would eat a half-baked cake. None of us would eat a half-baked anything. Because it'll do us harm. It's not prepared well. Political allegiance with God's people and with God's enemy are bad ingredients for cooking. That is why God calls them like a half-baked cake. It's not fit to eat. The last comparison he does, we find in verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove. A dove, it says, a dove silly and without sense. Basically what God is pointing out is Israel is ignorant. Without sense. Instead of seeking God first, they went to other people. They're ignorant. Verse 13 has the final comparison. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They have strayed away like this ignorant dove. And finally, verse 16. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. The final comparison God does here is that comparison of a bow, like a bow and arrow. It's a weapon. It's designed to shoot an arrow straight. And what the word means here, treacherous, is that it's useless. Because if you point it somewhere, it's not going to go where it intends to go. The arrow will miss the mark. Israel is missing the mark at every angle, at every pointing. It is useless. It is inaccurate. It misses the mark. And it's not functioning in its proper task. What's interesting is this word, they return. Look at verse 16 again. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Even though they tried to return, because they are an instrument that is broken, they can't go back the right way. What, what this is saying is, they may have realized their error, but they didn't do what they needed to do, clean their heart to come back to God. So even though they wanted to come back to God, they went in the wrong direction. It says they returned, but not upward. In a sense, they didn't look to God. Where did they go? What's the opposite of up? Because they're a broken bow. 
They tried to return to God, but they went down. They never really wanted Yahweh. What does this mean? Go with me to the New Testament. Go to Matthew. This is the last couple of things we're going to read here today. What does this mean? Matthew chapter 9. Look what Jesus does. Well, let's read it from verse 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And Jesus reclined at the table of the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinner. See, this is interesting. Why do we need to read the Old Testament? Because Jesus read the Old Testament. Jesus just quoted Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Why did he quote it? Because the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, we're accusing him of sitting with sinners. We're accusing him of, not, of sitting with tax collectors, the worst of the worst. And Jesus says, go learn what it says. What is Jesus doing here? You guys are the educated elite class of, the Israel, nation, of Israel as a nation. You guys have the Old Testament memorized. And Jesus says, go memorize it again. Go learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What, it, what does this all mean? What's beautiful here is what comes a little bit before what Jesus did. In chapter 9, verse 2, it says, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to him, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their, their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For your, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But, when, but that you know, may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. What happened here? They brought Jesus, a paralytic man, and Jesus, what he tells the Pharisees and the scribes is, I could easily just tell him, get up and walk and go, and you're healed. But Jesus, proving once again that he is God, says, first, I forgive your this is the healing that Israel in Hosea's time needed. This is what this paralytic man needed. Many of us would say, wow, Jesus lifted him up and he, and he healed him. Wow, that's amazing. God bless Jesus. But we cannot forget that first what Jesus did was he healed his sinful heart. That is what 
God and Christianity and worship is all about that we come to God because first he has healed our iniquity, our transgressions, so therefore we can seek after him truthfully. If God just heals our exterior, man, chances are you're just going to keep coming back for God to give you something else. And you're never going to be satisfied. This paralytic man could have been healed by Jesus and then he could have broken his legs again. What would he have done? But this paralytic man was healed from the heart. My friends, Jesus heals the heart. You and I need inner healing before we have external healing. And the beauty of this is that we have a Savior that does both. So come to Jesus. If you have not come to Jesus, today is your day. Let's stand up. Let's pray. Father, get rid of fake worship within us. Father, we're tired of playing the same game, doing the same thing, worshiping a false notion of God. Lord, clean our hearts. Clean our souls, our spirits. Wash us. Lord, what Christianity needs today more than ever is a realization that you came first, not in a sense to show your love, but through your love, wash our sins away. You knew how bad we were, and you washed us, and you loved us. And now we can say, I want to return to God. Father, that we return to God today from a truthful, genuine heart. One that really seeks after you. Give this English service a new heart. Give me, give us all a new heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.